You're listening to On the Record Online with Eric Schwartzman, where reporters and journalists go on the record about how they use the Internet to cover the news. For the latest trends, tips, and tactics on how the web shapes popular opinion, subscribe to our RSS news feed or visit us online at www.ipressroom.com. So I'm here at the 2009 Public Relations Society of America's International Conference in San Diego, and I am seated with the Robert Hastings. He is the VP of Communications uh, for Northrop Grumman's Information Systems, and he is a retired major from the U.S. Army and uh, a former Assistant Secretary of Defense uh, who uh, was in service to the current Secretary of Defense, Robert Gates, and uh, I am pleased to have him with me at this table. Thank you. I'm happy to be here. Um, so, first off, uh, walk us through what, what is an Assistant Secretary of Defense? How high up the chain is that? And, and who do you report to? And, and, and do, you, do you have an office at the Pentagon? And is it in the E-ring? Um, well... In my opinion, it was a really exciting job. I had an absolute blast. Yes, the Assistant Secretary of Defense for Public Affairs does work in the Pentagon on the E-ring, reports directly to the Secretary of Defense, and by the Constitution of the United States, we have civilian oversight of the military. So the entire armed forces are led by civilians. Uh, So the Secretary of Defense has a, a deputy, a number of undersecretaries, and a number of assistant secretaries that help manage that process. And the Assistant Secretary of Defense for Public Affairs leads the worldwide DOD public affairs program. So how many uh, undersecretaries? There, um, I'm going to be close, probably not exactly right. There's about five undersecretaries and ten assistant secretaries. So, I mean, this is the inner circle of the Pentagon's leadership, at least civilian leadership. Absolutely. It is the leadership of the Pentagon, along with the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff and the military leaders. So you know that room in Dr. Strangelove where they, they sat around? Remember, do you remember the movie? I do. Is there a room like that? Um, do you get to sit in a room like that? There with is. big There's screens a, and stuff? There and is a, a command center in the Pentagon, as you would imagine. It's a, uh, it's a large organization with, an, with a worldwide responsibility. And so there are people that work 24 hours a day keeping track of what's going on. So let's just talk for a minute about gadgets and technology, because I want to talk about strategic communications, but first, I want to know about gadgets and technology. You know, the, the, uh, the, the movie industry, you know, if you look back on movies over the years, like James Bond movies, right. there's that character Q, who always hands out the cool stuff to James Bond before he goes on his mission. And if you look back now at some of the things that Q gave out, they're almost, they almost seem, you know, idiotic. We've surpassed that. I mean... Now you're at Northrop. I mean, how cool is the stuff you've got? I mean, do do you have, if if you were going to write a James Bond 007 script, what would be some of the things you would think of as being the type of technology we would have, you know, tomorrow? First of all, the Department of Defense does, in fact, have the coolest gadgets and the coolest technology. Um, and I would I'd, uh, answer that question by saying uh, anything you or I could probably imagine to put in that novel, somebody has probably already uh, put it to work somewhere in the world. So, so it, anything I can think of, they've got it at, the, at DOD, you're telling me. I would venture to say yes. Yeah. So 
you know, I've I've had a few people from the U.S. Armed Forces on this podcast. Mm-hmm. I've uh, been pleased to have Staff Sergeant uh, Joshua Sammons, uh, who uh, is a teacher at uh, Dinfos. I know him well. He's a great American. I have had um, uh, uh, United States Marine Corps Major Danny Chung, mm-hmm. who is also a PAO at the uh, at Dinfos. Right. And just today, I spoke with uh, uh, Anne Peru. Kanabi, who was a spokesperson for the Pentagon War Court. And, you know, often I'll ask them questions, and I don't get the type of answers that I hear, you know, General McCafferty given on CNN. Often I'll ask the question, and, you know, it's a very guarded answer, or the answer is, I can't talk about that because I'm not in that station, and it's not my gig, and I don't want to, you know, cause any, give any information that is someone else is supposed to be giving out. So why is it that, I mean, obviously, obviously CNN's a, a better gig than this. I get that right. part. So I don't want to compare myself. But I, I've got to think, I mean, when a guy like Mercafferty gives opinions, why isn't he worried about giving an opinion that is not his to give because McChrystal's the guy now? And why is it that someone who, you know, I might be talking to is going to be more concerned about that? Well, I think there's, there's uh, two halves of that uh, answer. First of all, um, the retired military officers and former officials that you see on television that are um, media analysts, military analysts, are in fact expressing their opinion, but they're well-informed opinions based upon years of experience. But they're well-known to you and I as non-officials who are helping us understand things. When you talk to someone who's currently appointed in a position, they're going to be no different than a, a representative of a corporation, they're going to be very concerned about staying in their lane. And that's exactly the language we use in this profession. So, uh, so the, you know, the three military uh, officials you talked about um, each have very specific, focused, narrow lanes of responsibility. And I imagine, you know, in a conversation around what they do, Sergeant Salmon, who's an instructor at DINFOS, probably very informative about DINFOS. Um, if you asked him about the war in Iraq, his, his uh, uh, or Afghanistan, his context would be a little removed because he's a DINFOS right now. So you find because we do train military people about how to communicate, uh, it, it, you will get narrower responses because they're going to stick in what they're, they know and what they're authorized to talk about. So you're a former um, uh, service member. Right. And you're a former a civilian uh, leadership at uh, the Pentagon. Right. But now you're in the private sector, Right. And uh, so are you in a position to give opinions? I, well, the same guidance applies. I, I have a, a certain part of the corporation that I know well that um, I am, would be considered an expert in. And I also know what is proprietary and not proprietary. So um, there would be areas that I'd be willing to talk about and areas that I'd probably defer you to somebody else. Okay, so let's give it a shot. Um, I, I read, I'm a reader of this magazine, Wired. Do you read this magazine? I do. Excellent. I like it very much. Yep. I find like they, I find like of all the magazines, they really get inside these stories. And they had a really great profile on Secretary of Defense Robert Gates in the current issue. And they said a number of things. One of the things they said was what's different about him is that he's focused on getting the resources to win the war today instead of winning the war tomorrow. Is that true? Uh, that's very much true. <clears throat> um, I had the the both honor and privilege of working for Secretary Gates for just over a year before I left the Pentagon. And he's probably one of the wisest men that's ever held that job. And what 
uh, he observed when he came in there is there's a tension within the acquisition uh, system and the operational system between trying to balance the war and the operations you have today and then preparing for things to come. Uh, the Joint Strike Fighter fighter jet is about 35 years in development. If you ignore that, then a day will come and you'll have old airplanes and it, nothing to replace them with. But if you spend too much time worrying about that 35-year development process, then you're not doing a good job today. So he's put a, probably a better focus on that. And kind of the rule of thumb that he's applied, uh, he uses the term um, exquisite systems that take years to develop. Let's pay less attention to exquisite systems, pay more attention to getting a 75 or 80% solution quicker that we can get on the battlefield and in the hands of our soldiers quicker, and then improve it over time. So he really has rebalanced the focus of the Pentagon. Were you there uh, when he was working to acquire all the MRAPs? Um, at the time when there were so many soft-skinned Humvees in the field in Afghanistan, I'm sorry, in Iraq, and we were seeing so many casualties as a result of that. I know there's a lot of outrage uh, amongst people in the U.S. that these soldiers were being sent to war without the proper equipment. And uh, one of the things this, I learned about this from the Wired story, it said that uh, uh, the Secretary of Defense uh, really was able to purchase MRAPs quicker and get them built quicker than anyone has ever done before because you have to actually get the whole supply chain marching to a faster tune. Were you there during that? I, I was. Uh, not from the very first day. The process was moving at the time I joined his staff, but I was there for much of it. And you're absolutely right. There, I'd give you three examples of... Uh, of where the secretary cut through the bureaucracy and really made things happen very quickly. Uh, the first one, a little bit of what I'm talking about at the conference today is wounded warrior care. Um, he, he focused on wounded warrior care, cut through the bureaucracy, made tremendous, tremendous improvements in the quality of care and treatment for our, our wounded personnel. Uh, MRAPS was another one where he uh, problem came to his attention and using his authority and resources, move the system faster than it's ever moved before. And then the third one is around um, intelligence and surveillance on the battlefield. Commanders on the battlefield were telling us they needed faster, quicker, better intelligence to fight uh, the adversaries we had out there. And the secretary did the same thing there, put a, put a laser light focus on it, broke through the bureaucracy and really uh, kind of opened the, the floodgates to get the, the resources to the battle lines where they were needed. Does DOD rely on CIA for intelligence, or does DOD have its own intelligence? Well, the intelligence community is a, uh, a number of agencies, and they, they all share. So the, um, the Department of Defense has uh, the Defense Intelligence Agency. It has, it has uh, the services have their own military intelligence, and then there are the civilian agencies. And then this is where I hit kind of that context I talked to you about earlier. My, my knowledge of intelligence doesn't go much farther than that. But I, but I do believe there's a very robust sharing between the civilian intelligence agencies and the military agencies. Tell us, if you would, about uh, uh, what you're going to talk about here at the conference, Wounded Warrior mm -hmm. Care. So the, uh, the case study that I brought today is uh, Wounded Warrior Care. And it's one of the three priorities that I've talked to you about that Secretary Gates put a lot of attention on. Uh, most everyone in America, I think, would remember back in 2006, 2007, there was this growing concern that troops were coming back off the battlefield and they weren't being adequately cared about. 
And the Department of Defense put a tremendous effort on that. And I would argue probably today, maybe even then, but definitely today, the best healthcare system in the world is what's available to our veterans. Um, but the perception of that was far from true. Um, cartoons uh, making fun of the healthcare system, daily headlines about how bad it was, was not only eroding the public's confidence, but it was affecting the service members' confidence that they would be cared for. Uh, so we undertook a communications program last year, 2008, um, to kind of Put back in perspective and put some balance back around the perceptions of quality of how quality how good the care is for for military people and we use uh, what i call the principles of strategic communications it was a document we published last year we use that as our guidelines in putting together the strategy had a, a very effective campaign and uh, i think it makes for a really good case study what what would you say is the hardest lesson you learned um, from that case study I think the, the most important lesson is that you really have to know the problem you're solving. And here's the example that I, that I would share. Um, walking the halls of the Pentagon, 2008, uh, 2007, people were saying things like, you know, we're getting creamed in the headlines. We're getting beat up every day. But the headlines aren't accurate. You know, the, these hospitals, the level of care is so much better. Why is it we're getting beat up in the headlines? And public affairs, what can you do about it? Once we sat down and really analyzed the problem, we determined that the problem really wasn't the headlines. The headlines were reflective of the problem. The problem was confidence. Military members didn't have confidence in the healthcare system. The public didn't have confidence. Uh, members of Congress and our elected leaders had lost confidence. And that lack of confidence caused people to openly express their concerns. That led to the headlines. So that's when we realized we don't have a media relations problem. We have a confidence problem. And so that's what we focused our efforts on. So and my how, lesson, how did you win confidence? How did you pull that off? Do you feel as though you did? We did. I, I think I feel very good about uh -huh. this campaign. Uh, we focused the chain of command within the military and all its resources on educating and informing and making sure that service members knew the resources. There was, uh, there was an assumption that if you were in the military and you got wounded, we would take care of you and get you to a hospital. Well, no one ever told the soldiers what's in the hospital. How good is it? How good are the doctors? How good is the equipment and the technology and the, re and the research going on? So the campaign really focused on telling service members and their families the, about the quality of the care that was waiting there for them. And then we, we did allow military reporters and civilian reporters and community leaders to get into the hospitals, to see the programs, to be part of the conferences. And we, and we really, I think, kind of put back into perspective that confidence that, that should have been there all along. You know, when I was prepping for the interview, I Googled your name and I found a blog post. It was a GOP blog and it said you were a political appointee. And so I figured, oh, you must have raised money for the GOP. Is that the case? Um, well, it, it's half true. Yes, I was, in serving in that job, I was a political appointee. The, the top-tier civilian leadership of our government is appointed by the president. Um, but I did not raise any money for uh, any particular politicians. I've not been a particularly politically active person in my life. Um, I was, uh, I believe, selected for the job because I had the credentials and qualifications to come in and help Secretary Gates uh, lead the Pentagon during that time. 
So were you selected by Gates or are you selected by one of the undersecretaries or how does that work? I mean, because we always wonder, everybody wonders. I mean, everyone dreams that someday they'll be appointed ambassador of some country or something, right? It's, it's very uh, um, uh, glamorous to be thought that you'd be appointed for a big position like that. How do you get appointed? I can only tell you my story. And my story started with my cell phone ringing one evening, and it was a uh, person in the presidential personnel office asking me if I'd come in and talk to them about working in the government. What had you been doing previous to that? I I was in industry. I was a VP of communications in a different defense company. Uh, I'd been uh, been out of the military about 10 years and was in the the civilian role that I told you about. Phone rang. I mean, this is surreal. This is the White House calling, please hold. Someone came on the line and said, uh, Mr. Hastings, uh, we'd like you to come in and talk to us about serving in the the government again. And that discussion led to uh, the White House suggesting to Secretary Gates that I could be his head of public affairs. And did Uh, you have to go in and interview with him? I did. Were you quivering? I was I mean, because you you walk down that, that, that hallway... On the E-Ring, and they've got those campaign banners up there. And, I mean, by the time you get through the door with the, the eight-foot big sign that says, you know, Office of the uh, you know, Secretary of Defense, you got to be quivering. Yeah, the truth is I was. Um, it is, uh, it, it's humbling to be thought of as, as being able to work at that level. Uh, it's also uh, it causes a lot of anxiety because it's a big job. And, uh, and Secretary Gates was in the job for a little while before I met him. He was already establishing a, a reputation in the How country. How long was the interview? Um, the interview process leading up to talking to him. Just the interview with him. With him, yeah. probably about 45 minutes. 45 minutes. Right. Just you and him or other people in the room? Um, there were uh, two or three other people in the room, two or three other members of his staff. But I'd already I don't know if you can tell me this, but I'd be interested to know, what was the toughest question he asked you? The toughest question he asked me is, why would anybody want this job? And your answer? Um, to be honest, I told him that if I had seen the job advertised in the Washington Post, I wouldn't apply for it. But, um, but I was asked, and if I am, in fact, the best qualified person to do this for you, then I'd be honored to do it. And what time of day was the interview? Do you remember? It was a morning, afternoon? It was early in the morning. Early in the morning. Yeah. So what did you do that morning? Did you wake up early and work out? I mean, how do you, how do you prep for that? Um, well, like any job interview, I sat in the parking lot about an hour beforehand because I didn't want to be late. Um, yeah, it was, um, it was very much like any other job interview. What did you wear? So I wore what I wore every day in the Pentagon uh, when I was there. Blue suit, white shirt. Matching pantsuit. Solid. White shirt. Right. What kind of tie? Who knows? I can't remember. You don't remember the tie? I do not. You didn't think about it? I it wasn't like, not. oh, this is a Republican administration. No. I'm going to wear a red tie. No. No. I don't have any Republican ties. Okay. All right. That's no, no pun intended, I guess. Right? Um, tell me, I know you were involved with a document called the Pr- Principles of Strategic Communications. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, we published the uh, DOD Principles of Strategic Communications in uh, August of 2008. It was a result of, of um, a couple of years of intellectual discussion, but a couple of months of real hard work. And the idea was to try to provide 
doctrine, which is in the military we call the, you know, kind of the educational foundation, to provide doctrine for how do you communicate more effectively in today's uh, very heightened information environment. And it was an attempt to kind of move communications from a tactical public affairs uh, perspective to being able to really kind of move the needle. So when you, when you need to do a big campaign, these are the principles for doing that. Final question. I'm told there's a private dining room at the Pentagon just for officers. Yes? There are, well, it's interesting. Secretary, there were. Uh, Secretary Rumsfeld scaled back a lot of that. So there are um, what I call messes. So there's a Navy mess, an Army mess, an Air Force mess um, that you are members of for the senior officers. That's, that's but there's true. not like a, a, an officer's private dining room type deal? Well, the three messes you have to be members of, and, you, and they're for senior officers. But, but there's not one for all. It's segregated. Oh, no. There's not a, a you know, secret big dining room just right, for right, the very right. senior leaders. And if you go to that secret dining room, not the secret <laughs> dining room, but you go to this uh, officer's dining room, first of all, if you're a secretary of defense, you can go to any of them, right? I would imagine the secretary is a member of all of them the didn't day you, he walks You didn't in. go to them all? I, I did. While you were there? I was a member of all of them. So you ate at all of them at least once? Yes, I did. So which one had the best food? <laughs> Is it the same kitchen? <laughs> well, I, no, it's not. They're very separate. Um, since I'm in a Navy town here, I'll tell you that the Navy had the best uh, food. Oh, come on. Who's got the best food? <laughs> uh, the, the Navy was the one I used Navy the was good? Yeah. And what did they make particularly well? I mean, were they um, big on fish? No, not at all. It, it's, not as, uh, it's not as complicated as you think. It's more like uh, club sandwiches and uh, hamburgers and... And uh, Caesar salad. Got it. Okay. Yeah. All right. Uh, Robert Hastings, um, retired major from the U.S. Army and VP of Communications for Northrop Grumman's Information Systems subsidiary. Thank you for joining us. Thank you. You've been listening to On the Record Online with Eric Schwartzman, where reporters and journalists go on the record about how they use the web to cover the news. For the latest trends, tips, and tactics on how the web impacts corporate reputations, subscribe to our RSS news feed or visit us online at www.ipressroom.com.